from Deus Humanity-Centered Artificial Intelligence. My name is Natalie Post, and this is the Human-Centered AI Podcast. We feature inspiring stories of people who are paving the way and shaping the future of artificial intelligence in ways that are human, humanity, and planet-centered. Today, I'm joined by Kenneth Bowles, a designer, futurist, and director of Now Next, where he advises companies on ethical technology and responsible innovation. Kenneth is also the author of Future Ethics, a book that takes modern ethical theory and transforms it into practical advice for designers, product managers, and software engineers. In this episode, we talk about his book and how we can use methods from disciplines like speculative design and future studies in order to stimulate our moral imagination. We also talk about the role of ethical guidelines and what it means to translate those into practice and how you can start and have more conversations within your team or organization around ethics. And finally, Kenneth will share his view on the field of ethics and tech as it is today, and the changes he's noticing within that. So without further ado, here is the episode. Hi, Kenneth, and welcome to the Human-Centered AI podcast. I am actually really, really excited to be talking to you today because I love your work and I've been following it for a while, and I cannot wait to pick your brain on all things ethics and technology. Um, but for our listeners who may not know you yet, Could you start by giving a bit of an introduction about yourself and also your background? Sure thing. Um, glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. So yes, my name is Kenneth Bowles. I'm a designer and futurist based in London. I now run uh, an ethical design and future studio called Now Next. Uh, I've also written a book called Future Ethics, which is out two years ago now. God, that's flown by. Uh, my background is in interaction design, digital product design, 20 also years of experience in that um, across a range of, well, a range of sectors, government, e-commerce, uh, social media. I was uh, headed, headed up the UK design team at Twitter for three years. Um, and since then, I've been consulting and, and moving ever more into the space of responsible technology and ethical innovation. So that's now my full-time uh, full gig, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what kind of motivated you to focus on, you know, ethics in technology? Like what caused that direction? Well, I think I had, I had a sort of an interest in it as a, as a younger man. I don't have any background in philosophy or anything like that. I actually have a physics degree, which is quite rare, I think, for a designer. Um, but I've been lucky enough to have been giving talks at conferences for 12 years or so, something like that. And I was introduced at one event And uh, they had a system whereby it was it was your peers who were introducing you at this, and so one of the one of the uh, one of the attendees was introducing me and said one thing I like about Kenneth is that he has this ethical theme running through his talks, and I was like I do I hadn't really realised that that was something that had seeped into my uh, professional worldview I suppose. Um, after I left Twitter, so this would be 2015, um, I. It's not that I it's not that I witnessed any practice that immediately caused sort of ethical horror or anything like that, but I felt that ethics was a topic that really wasn't getting the airtime that it needed within the field. We were getting to a level of maturity that suggested we needed to be much more sophisticated about how we thought about our, our duties. And 
that discussion wasn't really happening. And I had the luck and privilege to have, you know, I made a little bit of money off the t- Twitter, uh, you know, my, my time at Twitter, um, you know, sold sold some stock, not not enough to, you know, utterly transform my life, not not some Silicon Valley, you know, myth money, but, um, you know, enough that I didn't have to rush into the next thing. And so I thought, you know, this is a topic that I need to learn more about because there's something I can perhaps do to further that conversation. And then I started researching it and was blown away by the depth of work that is happening or that was happening at the time around that, but that practitioners really had no idea about. You know, you had academics, you had artists, you had uh, futurists, you know, all sorts of you know writers uh, talking about the implications, the social impacts of technology, and we weren't listening to these people. So I thought, okay, all right, I've got to, I've got to spend some time. Took two years learning about that, researching the book, and so on, and and it it. Uh, fortunately became a field that gets more fascinating the deeper I get into it. And so I sort of put, put the hook in me from that point and uh, hasn't let go since. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and it's funny what you say, because right now, especially in tech, it feels like everyone is talking about ethics, you know, and I definitely think that a lot of those contributions came from you know, also movies that are bringing this to the broader audience. But I'm very curious to hear more about why did you choose to write a book? Like why why that format and why yeah, why future ethics? Why that title? Mm. I think it was James Baldwin who says you don't no one sets out to be a writer. You discover you are a writer. And I think that's the case for me. I like writing is horrible. No one enjoys writing, but I love having written And, you know, having written a book previously, I knew I was capable of doing it. And I thought this would um, would be the best method to try to bridge that gap, if you like, between the work that was happening and uh, the world of practitioners. Um, for me, the particularly interesting implications of ethics were around emerging technology. There's certainly a lot to be said about the ethics of existing technology, but... You know, it's a bit of a fait accompli. These things are built; they're in the market; they're unleashing their, uh, you know, their harms onto, onto people already. Um, and the ethical stakes are only going to get higher with time, as tech companies ask for more uh, trust and they intrude further potentially into people's lives. And we rely upon those fundamental infra- infrastructures more more deeply. And there, and so of course that means the time to have those conversations is now, before those tools are commercialized, before they're designed, before we know exactly what format they'll take. So for me, it felt that uh, it was going to be most useful for me to focus on what was around the corner. And I'm talking mostly, you know, your sort of five to ten year horizon rather than your fifty to a hundred year horizon. Um, and so that was really the the, the genesis. The book saying yeah, yeah. the way the way the book is structured is you start with some of the more proximate threats, you know, things that are happening right now around data and algorithmic bias, for example. But then we end up in the more far future, uh, you know, autonomous weaponry or you know the, the, all these wonderful theories about superintelligence that uh, the ethical challenges that that might pose. So it's essentially a little bit of a, a projected future history, if you like, of where technology might head next. Yeah, yeah, and I, what I found really interesting about your book is that. 
you talk about using all these tools and methods that exist in speculative design and future studies kind of for moral imagination purposes. And I wonder what made you make the connection between those fields? Initially, it was accident. I was working with the BBC on a project. Um, uh, in fact, it was it was uh, you know a project around around ethics and bringing ethics into a um, you know a real world project that they had and trying to sort of prototype using ethical methods. So I I, I brought some approaches from value sensitive design and tried to apply them to a design sprint model that um, you know is pretty common within uh, design practice. And we got to a, a point where we realised the prototype we were working on really wasn't potentially harmful. It was it was quite a benign use case we were investigating. And so we could push things, essentially. We could sort of say, well, what if we test some prototypes, not, not ones that we think are viable products, but ones essentially to push, see how far we can go. Um, and, you know, if we turn this dial up, you know, all, all the way to users have a problem with it, that kind of thing. As I say, we'd, we'd looked and there really wasn't any damage that we could do from doing this. And so we realized what we were creating was yeah, essentially more prototypes to provoke rather than prototypes to test product validity. And, you know, I even said, well, we, maybe we need a name for this. So I, I said, well, you know, provocotype with sort of tongue firmly in cheek. And of course, I was aware there was this, you know, as a designer, I was aware there was a, you know, a, a field of critical design of, of speculative design that sort of looked at design fiction. Um I saw this as slightly different, but it was that was frankly a little bit pedantic. And so the more I looked into and the more I deepened my knowledge about speculative and critical design, the more I said, well, you know what, actually, this is pretty much the vehicle that we were we were playing with anyway. So let me let me learn more about that and draw some of those ideas in. That point about moral imagination is is key. One of the tech industry's bigger problems, I think, is it's quite um it's actually quite limited in its imaginations or its imagination only happens through a pretty constrained channel. And that imagination is often a very sort of optimistic, utopian perspective of how technology is going to improve the world and change the world for the better, right? And that means that, by, from my experience, technologists aren't particularly good at imagining future impacts on people who are not like them and future impacts that don't proceed according to the plan. And speculative design is a very good way to make potential futures feel real. I think it's particularly strong at making morally ambiguous futures feel real. I think there's far too much leaning on sort of easy utopias or trite dystopias, particularly in, in, in sort of mainstream science fiction, for example. I mean, look at Black Mirror. It's a very capable piece of speculative fiction, but it leans heavily dystopian. Um, and I think that if I think it's much more interesting when you carve a, a sort of morally ambiguous middle ground. And so it just felt like a natural fit that we can shortcut, um, you know, rather than make people participate in thought experiments about the future social impact of technology, let's create the artifacts. Let's bring people directly into that world by bringing that world to them. And then they can have conversations about it. And that applies not just for project teams, but also for users, for communities, for other stakeholders, whose views we might need to get on it.
Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, could you actually talk a bit more about those different types of methods? I mean, you mentioned the provocatives. I love that word, by the way. Really, really great. Um, but I know you also talk a bit about unintended consequences and externalities in your book and what types of methods you use to uncover those more. Could you talk a bit about those? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, there's quite a, quite a lot I could say on that. Let's talk about the externalities first. Um, so I'm sure, you know, your listeners, I'm sure know, but the externality is essentially, right, a, uh, uh, an effect that falls upon someone outside of the system. So, you know, passive smoking, for example, you don't buy the cigarette, you don't smoke the cigarette, but if you stand next to a smoker, you inhale. Um, so my views on this have actually shifted a little bit or maybe become more sophisticated, perhaps, as I've learned more. And, and things are starting to change a little bit in the space. Um, so I use, I use uh, something called the Actor Triangle, which is from, uh, I sort of adapted from NordCap's Actionable Futures Toolkit, which is a way to essentially tease out who might be some of the stakeholders that we were ignoring. Um, again, maybe a weakness of technologists or particularly designers is they focus on users to the extent that they uh, really overlook the non-users of a system who are still impacted by it that technology, right? And they overlook uh, systemic uh, impacts as well, impacts on all these sort of abstract concepts like democracy, freedom of the press, justice, you know, whatever you might want to throw in there. And of course, the impact on non-human life and the impact on the environment. Those are generally overlooked in user centric design. So the point of the actor triangle is to try and tease out some of those extra stakeholders, those indirect stakeholders who might be impacted by our work. But I think there's a there's a change going on now, or there's a uh, sort of subtle shift in what's happening, particularly in you know the tech ethics space. Some people have said we're actually in a third wave of tech ethics already, and it's only taken sort of four years to get to this point. We've had a sort of philosophically driven wave. We've had a technically driven wave, mostly around algorithmic bias and mitigation methods for um, data scientists and so on. But then a third wave, which is predicated much more upon uh, inclusion, uh, diversity, and justice. And so there's overlap with the, the uh, social justice movements, plural, um, but looking at not just ensuring we listen to people from underrepresented groups in the design process, but actually actively including them uh, in our product strategies, in our design sessions, and bringing them into the, you know, into the design studio, into the, the room where the decisions are made. And so I've learned a lot, even in the last couple of months, from people working in product inclusion and design justice. And I'll mention Annie Jean-Baptiste here. I'll mention Sasha Costanza-Choc, um, you know, folks who are really helping to push that forward. So actually, on the topic of externalities uh, and ensuring that we understand a more diverse group of people and communities, I would defer to them as the experts on that. And I'm, I'm trying to learn what I can. Um, to update my own practices and to bring those to my clients. With the unintended consequences, this is where I lean mostly on the uh, futures thinking and strategic foresight methods. Um, I use things like the, the futures wheel, uh, sometimes called impact mapping. I use that quite a bit. Um, uh, what else would I use? I'd use, um, I actually even just recently with a client started using the Gartner hype cycle as a way just to give a framework for predicting potential 
timelines for technological development and put them in a future historical context. Okay, this might hit a trough of disillusionment in 2024. What might cause that, right? What might be the social uh, impacts of it that cause technologists to lose faith in this technology? So you sort of attempt to preempt uh, where that technology heads, heads next. So yeah, so this is this is where that um, where that link to all the, the valuable work that uh, people working in foresight, foresight and futures comes in. Um, I've, I've been I've just started to read um, Scott Smith um, and you know Changist that, that that crew they just brought out a, a book called How to Future, which gives a really good overview of some of those techniques. So um, yeah, plenty plenty of wisdom contained within those. Uh, yeah, great. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the work that you do right now with organizations and putting ethics into practice, because, um, yeah, I think we're all quite aware a lot of organizations, they set out these ethics guidelines or codes of ethics. And first of all, I really want to hear your thoughts on those. And then I'm wondering how you take those guidelines or codes of ethics or even establish those and how you go about bringing them into practice. My thoughts on on codes of ethics or principles have changed a little bit. I was quite hostile originally. Um, and my thinking on it has developed because of, because of the role that people place them in. To be honest, it's, it's almost a default first step now for a lot of people. Pretty much every time I engage with a company or I mean a potential client, they say, "I think what we need is some kind of guidelines." Um, and by themselves, that, that they won't solve a thing, right? You know, guidelines and principles can be very useful, but they are the result of proper investment into responsible innovation and ethic, you know, and ethics. And 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 I think a lot of companies see them as the solution, right? publish some guidelines, problem solved. And so this, is, of course, is where we get into the, the idea of ethics washing. A lot of companies want the performative aspects. You know, they can publish something to say we're taking ethics seriously, but then when tricky decisions are taken, those get very quickly rooted uh, around. So I think they can have utility. I'm, I'm absolutely not a big fan of the sort of codes of ethics or the principles that are created by one enlightened expert. Um, this has blighted the field of design in the last few years. You've had, uh, you know, senior experienced designers saying, well, I've diagnosed the problem for our industry. And if we just follow my 10-step plan, then um, we will now practice ethically. And that's that's nonsense because, uh, you know, who, whoever these people are, they don't recognize that, of course, those principles are riddled with their own biases. Um, and who on earth appointed them the ethical arbiter, right? That's... that's um, that for me is not a good way to go about it. I'm I'm much more of a fan of the consultative uh, codes of ethics you get from the IEEE, for example. They have ethically aligned design. You have the ACM uh, professional body have their code of ethics, which has been updated recently and is very strong. Um, anyway, so translating those to practice is 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 terrifically important. So I think they're a necessary but not sufficient tool, and. I'm now working with companies and saying, yes, okay, well, we we will create something like that because we need to document what we mean by certain values, by certain principles. We need to have a North Star that we navigate toward, but that needs to be translated into practice through 
tools and techniques and an ethos of responsibility. And so typically I'm marrying that up with, you know, some kind of playbook or some kind of um, process changes, recommendations, maybe some ethical infrastructure, as I would call it as well, some, um, you know, more structural changes to ensure that um, it's not just like checklist ethics, right? Where you do your usual design and development process. And then just before you hit the button, you say, oh, let's just look at the guidelines. Have we violated any of these major harms uh, or, or these promises that we've made? No, good. Okay, let's let's release it. Um, that That isn't the kind of work I'm interested in doing because it's not going to affect any, any positive change. So yeah, you have those as overarching definitional things and also usefully, they, they have a useful role in assuming you publish them publicly, which I think you should, in making sure that you're accountable for it to the public because you then put out a statement saying, here's how, we'll, here's how we operate. Um, but you've got to give people tools to, to actually do their work differently. And you've got to have the incentives and the infrastructure in place to ensure that that process is fully applied. Yeah, and so I'm curious to hear how you make sure that that process is fully applied. So how do you make sure it's embedded rather than this afterthought checklist? I mean, this is the this is the tricky thing because any project will always, you know, grind up against the reality of what's happening inside any company. And I've yet to see a project in I don't know, 15 or so years of consulting, maybe a bit less, but plenty of years of consulting. I've yet to be on a project that's perfectly aligned to change everything that it ought to be able to change. And, you know, so projects typically have a mandate. You can look at this, but you can't look at this. And that can be tricky, right? It can cause this disillusionment among the team when they realize the boundaries they've been given. Okay, start to bump up against the walls and say, well, here's the change we can affect, but while these other practices are going on or while these other incentive systems or business models or whatever it is are in place and we can't challenge them, then the efficacy of what we do is going to be low. Nevertheless, um, I'm never I'm never too keen on being told things are out of bounds. As a consultant, I think it's my job and as a, you know, an ethics person, I suppose, I think I have a moral duty to say, well, I, you know, I, um, I understand that, but from my professional perspective, these issues are also impacting the success of, you know, what you want to do here. So you have to question them, but you also have to be realistic and pragmatic and know that you're not going to be able to go into Google, for example, and say, you need to end the advertiser funding model for Google because you ruin that company, right? So um, it takes a it, it takes a good balance of ambition and optimism, but a bit of sort of pessimistic pragmatism as well. Um, a phrase I keep, I find myself repeating frequently is pull every lever at the moment. There are so many things we need to work on that we need some micro changes. We need some little tweaks to processes. We need some designers to start moving buttons in different places so they're not dark patterns, you know, things like that. And then we need people looking at is, is capitalism an ethical system you know huge political questions that i'm not really uh, equipped to to ask so um yeah you have to understand those boundaries and then you have to push gently against them and try to mobilize a deeper discussion than you were originally given license for i think 
Yeah, so for people who are listening to this and are maybe, you know, having these types of questions or wanting to facilitate discussions around ethics within their companies or within their teams, what would you recommend them to go about this? How to, you know, start having these conversations and also, yeah, what is a suitable, uh, let's say, frame within an organization to have these conversations in? The easiest way to start having these conversations is just with simple prompt questions. And uh, there are plenty of those published. Um, most of them, frankly, are not very good, but there are a couple that I, I would recommend. Um, I would look at something like the ODI's Data Ethics Canvas, um, which is, you know, it's a very nice PDF, but it's really a, a lot of prompt questions under certain categories. So they're, they're well constructed. And I would look at Ethical Explorer as well, which is a toolkit that Omidyar Network released about a month or two ago. Um, very nice sort of starter pack to what I would call risk mapping, looking at the potential damage that you could do or the potential ethical issues that might arise in your work, again, by category. So you have, you know, disinformation, surveillance, uh, I think there might be one for sort of physical harm. Um, but uh, those those are good starting points. So yeah, arm yourself with a good set of prompt questions just to begin that conversation because you'll find, you'll find some people won't have considered them, but you'll also be surprised, I think, so that some people in your team will say, you know what, yeah, that's been bugging me too. What should we do about that? So you start that discussion very simply and very accessibly. You don't need to lead in with, huge amounts of ethical theory. You don't need to hire a philosopher on day one. Start those conversations and then see where that takes you, see what your next steps should be. And in terms of the right points to interject that kind of conversation, the blase answer is whenever, right? There's never a bad time to do it. Um, even after you've launched, okay, it's, it's better to ask those questions before, but at least, you know, if you ask them after you've launched, at least you're asking them, at least you're... Uh, being alert to the possibility that you might be able to do better next time. But the most obvious spots are either within design critique. So, you know, my background is design. So that's, that's a, you know, uh, a ritual I know well, where you, you know, essentially tear each other's design to, to shreds in a respectful manner. Um, because you're, you're already asking difficult questions about, is this actually the right solution? And what might this cause that we didn't expect? Um, so design critique, if you're a designer or if you're lucky enough to be in those rooms and those sessions, or the other one is probably um, sprint demos. So I'm assuming that a lot of tech teams are going to be working in an agile manner. They're going to be working in sprints. And then every every week or every two weeks, whatever it is, you will have a demo. Here's what we've built. That's a great time to ask those questions, right? Say, oh, okay, what if what if you know people use this particular tool in a way we hadn't anticipated? Could they use it to harm other people? Could they use it to harass other people? Um, you know, what might be some of those negative uh, consequences or externalities that might result from this? So those, there is something to be said for sort of piggybacking existing rituals in companies and just dropping in those questions. So that's why I'd, I'd always recommend uh, starting off. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that you, you say that actually about that piggybagging on, you know, these agile rituals. I haven't even thought about it in that way, but it's a really nice way to actually use existing, you know, structures rather than creating entire new meetings and sessions, et cetera, to have these conversations. I think that's a really, really nice way. And I wonder a bit more about the type of work you do with organizations, because I can imagine 
well, it's quite a process as a consultant to embed yourself within an organization and their context. But how do you go about, you know, creating that learning journey for the companies you work with to, you know, start asking these questions and start embedding it in their process? Mm-hmm. Typically, when when I have a, a potential client reach out, it's usually because, you know, they've come across my work, but there's also internal appetite. It's partly... It's, it's sometimes driven by, you know, there's a senior uh, practitioner. So, you know, not a manager, but someone who's respected and uh, listened to within the company has said, you know, I think we need to listen to Kenneth. We should, you know, get him in for a talk or get him in for some training or just have a chat with him about how we handle this. As a response to building appetites and mobilization inside the company. And, you know, we've seen a lot of major tech firms, very large tech firms have significant amounts of employee activism and mobilization around ethics and responsibility. Google are the most obvious example, but that's now spread to, you know, pretty much every every major tech firm has had that. And it's now trickling down to mid-sized tech companies as well. So yeah, usually there's that um that sort of appetite say, right, well, let's let's talk to Kenneth and see, yeah, see, see what what he would recommend. Um a lot of the time then there are existing people you can draw on. So I, I what I tend to recommend is trying to assemble uh, an internal project team, you know, just a virtual team. You don't need to hire, uh, you know, a chief ethics officer right off the bat. You don't need a, et cetera. People who are interested in this, try to immerse them in a little bit more theory, a little bit more of a sort of contextual understanding of what's happening in the space. And then my job as a consultant is much more of a facilitator to help that team be as effective as possible by giving them some of the knowledge, giving them some of the tools and techniques and just kind of corralling that work and, and helping to shape it in, in the right way. But that's, it has to be contextual. You can't, I, you know, I, I don't have the luxury. It would be easier as a consultant if I could just come in and say, here's my patented process that's been proven to work in 25 different sectors. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't work. Every company has their own context and culture. So you have to tailor it. Uh, accordingly, which is why the power has to rest internally with that group and not with me as the external, uh, the external person. So, client I'm working with at the moment is is yeah, we're moving from, um, you know, deep sort of immersion and, and training and upskilling to a process of okay, what are the interventions we want to make within the wider company? What are the right techniques for that? Do we need a set of principles? Do we need a set of uh, you know, tools and playbooks and things like that. Do we need uh, risk mapping exercises? Do we need internal training? Do we need a you know a comm strategy and so on? So it's yeah, there's no there's no sort of template. But typically, yeah, I find people companies start to engage with me because they want to talk or they want some training, um, and then I sort of start questioning what are the, what's the change you actually want to affect? It might be a talk or training is a good start, but it might be that actually that's not going to give you the sort of transformation you really want. In which case. Let's talk about what that deeper relationship looks like. Yeah. And what have kind of been your most significant learnings? Because you you talked a bit about, you know, how your view has either like changed or a bit expanded over these last few years working in ethics and tech. Um, but what have been those, you know, learning moments where you were like, oh, hey, this is eye opening. Let's look at it differently. I would certainly say, not back to what I was mentioning earlier about the uh, product inclusion and the design justice perspectives. Something I've identified as a 
a sort of historic weakness in in my work for sure, but actually, frankly, the work of a lot of the the field is there's been too much too much technocracy. You know, sort of an almost uh, a, a totally understandable conclusion of wow, we've got ourselves into kind of a mess here as a as a field, and so it's on us us to get ourselves out of it. Which okay, at least you're owning up to some moral responsibility there, and you're trying to trying to say let's let's change things. But these decisions are too important to be left to just uh, you know well educated or technically literate people. They should also include a far wider cross section of society. So that's been one of my significant learnings this year is we've been failing on that, and we need to involve the public in these decisions. We need to involve underrepresented groups and communities in these decisions. Um, I'm trying to think what else has shifted in my own. Uh, I think I, I think I've been surprised by actually by the the, the appetite and the literacy in these issues uh, around these issues in, in a lot of companies now. The, the conversation has, conversation I'm having are becoming much more sophisticated, which is fantastic. Obviously. Um, you know, that means hopefully we're progressing and it makes my, my life easier as well. We are somewhat getting past the point of, um, well, I think a lot of companies frankly hoped this ethics thing would blow over, right? And it's not going to, you know, that, that, that ship has sailed. Um, tech workers have realized that they are powerful in aggregate, um, you know, they're expensive, they're hard to replace, they're, um, you know, they can directly affect what gets built and what doesn't. And so, you know, that that course is not going to be reversed. And so now I think we're seeing companies saying, okay, well, we, we can't just sort of placate them by publishing some guidelines. We do actually need to make some kind of change. And they're also connecting that to consumer demand. And there's now you know, a lot more evidence that Consumers are starting to see the tech industry in a less positive light than they used to, going back five years even. And so there are stronger commercial reasons to make those kind of, kinds of changes. Well, it's not just to keep your talent happy um, or it's not just to avoid, you know, journalists and uh, newspapers uh, writing terrible articles about you. There's actually a you know legitimate positive benefit. So the conversation has shifted a little bit away from just a pure risk-based um, mindset to one of saying, okay, this is actually a, a benefit that we can positively differentiate against competitors. We can uh, create better quality products. We can um, you know use this as a um, a constructive influence, if you like within our, our company. A long way to go before that's the default mindset, of course. But um, I suppose that's been one of the biggest shifts that I've, I've seen in how clients are thinking about this stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm also wondering, this third wave of ethics, um, is climate change a part of that? And like, do you consider climate change an ethical problem and also these ethical dialogues, so to say, that you're having? I don't think climate is anywhere near well enough represented in these conversations. Um, while I while I think this third wave, if we're calling it that, is is terrifically important, um, 
perhaps there's a fourth wave that's more climate orientated as well. I'm not saying we do away with the, the current wave because, as I say, it has a hell of a lot to, to, to tell us. Um, but climate is the moral issue of the century. You know, and if we solve climate as much as we're ever going to solve climate, but if we overcome the challenges that climate crisis has thrown at us, then frankly, it's very likely that we also, along the way, scoop up a lot of the other moral problems of society and improve things along those axes as well. That's not guaranteed. There are climate solutions that are not just and not equitable. Um, but if we ignore the um, you know, the spectre of, of climate crisis, then to be honest, a lot of these smaller fixes, um, you know, it's important to fix biased algorithms, for example, but um, if one third of the planet is uninhabitable by the end of the century, then frankly, that doesn't really matter quite so much compared to that, right? So I do worry we have been focused on, actually in the long term, the 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 threats that get the attention are frankly quite daft. Um, you know, worries about super intelligence and, you know, Rocco's basilisk and all this sort of stuff. I, they're, they're interesting thought experiments and they, you know, there's lots of interesting blog posts to be written about them, but it's like worrying about cholesterol um, while you're tied to the train tracks, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a, an enormous threat that is certain uh you know, there, there is no backing out of climate crisis now. It's going to happen. The question is how bad things are going to get. And I think we we need to recognise the severity of that. Now, there is some very good mobilisation and some very good work happening within tech around uh, climate crisis, um, you know, climate action groups within companies and, you know, among practitioners. Um, but it's not really being connected to the ethics movement in any meaningful way. And that's that's a damn shame because there's a lot we should learn from each other. And so, you know, I've tried my best to learn more about those communities and how we sort of tie them together, but I'm, I'm just one person. So we've got a hell of a lot more work to do on that. Yeah. Yeah. So is that what you think is next in, in ethical tech, let's say, or or what is next? <laughs> yeah, I mean, possibly. I I don't think it's likely that that's going to be the next significant shift. Um, I think more likely is it's a pretty obvious trajectory that now there's a lot of interest in this. Um, the field is starting to attract some people who are less capable, less knowledgeable about it. The question for those people is how they address that. Do they want to address it? Are they going to take the time to actually learn about these issues and consult with you know the, the literature that exists, for example? Or are they, you know, going to just practice charlatanry because there's money available, right? Um, and my hunch is it's probably going to be the latter. So there's going to be a crisis of credibility at some point within this field, you know, a sort of tech lash lash, if you like, um, where underqualified people or, you know, um, mega consulting groups, for example, so many of them are scrambling to implement responsible innovation practices and departments. Now, some of those I respect. Some of them are actually doing it the right way and some of them I do not respect. Um, so the results are going to be very mixed. And that's going to, yeah, that's going to cause this, this sort of problem. So I, I suspect we're going to have discussions about how we tell 
those groups apart, how we actually determine someone's capabilities and competence in this field. There's going to be talk of certification and licensing and chartership, as there always is with these kind of things. Um, do we need like a certified, you know, ethical technologist or uh, that kind of stuff? Um, and it's going to, it's it's, go, it's still it's it's still going to hit unresolved questions about balancing priorities of the short-term needs of industrial growth capitalism and the longer-term um, social impacts that technology causes. And so maybe the fourth wave is also even more, you know, explicitly political. You could argue this third wave is getting pretty strongly politi political or politicized. Um, but on the assumption that we actually start to invoke Green New Deals and that sort of, you know, more, more profound economic change, in coming years, then I think that that sort of political interface is going to become more more explicitly important as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So as we're kind of nearing the end of of our time here, um, I'm curious to hear, like, knowing all this and what you just said about you know what is actually next in ethical tech and what you see changing um, in terms of, you know, maybe those ethics licenses or all well, the politicization of these things. What can you recommend to people to do, you know, with this information? How should people take this forward? Well, it's always about listening. Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm fairly knowledgeable in this field now. I certainly feel a lot more knowledgeable than I did six months into it. You know, six months in, I was realizing just how little I knew. And so I had to, had to pick that up. And now sort of five years into that journey. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm picking up things, but the, this community is shifting quite rapidly these days. You have to carve out time and space to learn from experts in this, in this field. You, well, what we don't need is more kind of almost sort of tech neo-colonialism. That's... Let me have a little rant. Silicon Valley has this infuriating habit of believing themselves to be the first brave explorers on any new shore, right? Um, and, you know, all these experts have been sort of watching on the sidelines, having, you know, spent, dedicated their entire lives to it and seeing us run just into these uh, same old walls again and again. So um, take the time, carve out some space to listen to these people, to bring them into your... Uh, into your brain, essentially. Um, but we also desperately need to translate this stuff into practice. Unless we start to create particularly more case studies, there really aren't enough case studies for this stuff. So we need companies, we need practitioners to start making some of these changes, even on a small way, inside their own companies. Listen to each other, take action collectively, um, because it's very hard to say no to a thousand people. It's easy to say no to one person. But find allies within your community, within your organization, and say, we can we can do something here. We can push for some kind of change. And then tell the world what you did and tell the world about the effects that it had because that then bolsters the entire movement. So I'm, I'm on a thing right now where I'm, I'm trying desperately to, to uh, find more case studies that we can use as precedent to convince our companies this is worth doing. So others, but don't just get wrapped up in in improving your knowledge, put it into action as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I actually really love what you're saying about these case studies, because I think anyone who's ever like looked into, you know, the kind of ethical questions that we're facing and things like bias and what is happening in the tech world, you often see things that went wrong and, you know, articles about how it went wrong, but not a case study of how you can take an ethical question and how to have these conversations with moral imagination and to get to a certain solution. I think that's a really good point um, that you're making. We need more of those rather than this is what went wrong. Yeah, and, and, and that, that focus on what went wrong is one of the things that keeps us in that risk mindset, that this is about mitigating risks and avoiding all the bad things that could happen. And if we end up concluding that that's all ethics offers us, that's, that's kind of a sad loss. Like That really isn't the real potential of this body of work. So to close this conversation, if people want to learn more about you, your work, the type, you know, your book even, where should they go? Sure. Well, I'm, uh, I am very easy to find because I have an unusually spelled name. So I sort of dominate the, the search uh, rankings for that. So if you just Google Kenneth, C-E-N-N-Y-D-D, you'll find my website, you'll find my Twitter. Um, and so that's that's a good place to start. My book is called Future Ethics, uh, and you can find more about that at future-ethics.com. Great. Thank you so much, Kenneth, for this conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks a lot for having me. And that was it for this episode of the Human-Centered AI Podcast. If you like this episode or have any feedback, do not hesitate to reach out to us at deus.ai. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.